Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. The US is starting now to recognize that solar plus storage has a lot of value because you don't need the cheapest kilowatt hour. What you need is the cheapest kilowatt hour that you can deliver on demand because you need solar at night, not just in the day. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior, and welcome back. This is episode 251 of Suncast. I can hardly believe we're rounding the corner, headed towards 300 episodes. And we're having a lot of fun right now with Suncast, our guests. If you're paying attention, watching along, you know that we just wrapped our second day of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit. And if you stuck through it till the end of the day, then you no doubt got the chance to see, hear, and learn about today's guest, Mr. Merrick Kubik. Merrick is such an inspirational young man, uh, which is no doubt why he was voted to Forbes 30 under 30. He is the market leader for the UK for Fluence, and he is on a mission to bring more storage and renewables penetration to the world. We get a chance to dig into how not only Fluence is leading the energy storage revolution, but how they're deploying so many firsts around the world, like the first battery in Ireland, which is 60x faster than the competition. We talk a bit about Merrick's choice to be inside of a growth startup, a part of a big corporation rather than joining the startup craze and entrepreneurial craze that we see in the world uh, today and why he would choose that path from an impact perspective. He has such a fascinating story about why he joined AES and how he found himself influenced as a leader, but he's very intentional about being a thought leader. In fact, I would encourage you to go check him out on LinkedIn, see some of the things that he's posted as well as his personal blog, which we get into from travel to photography to being a doctor in engineering, this guy brings a full ship. I'm telling you, you're going to enjoy this conversation. If you like this kind of thought leadership, then I encourage you to take a look at the 250 other interviews that we have here on Suncast. You can do that at mysuncast.com. And again, if you missed the Suncast Summit, well, you can go to suncastsummit.com and register. We have one more final day that's coming to you May 6th, highlighting the kind of state of the union of Latin America. It's an exciting lineup that we have for that. But you can also check out all of the past guests and sessions that we had from uh, Earth Day and yesterday. Catch up on our Impact and Innovation Summits. But for now, let's dig in to another fascinating deep dive conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we get another chance to take a deep dive with someone who has come to my attention thanks to another Suncast tribe influence or mutual friend, uh, James Ellsmore. Today's guest, Merrick Kubik, is the market lead for Fluence 
in the UK and Ireland. He oversees a group working on origination, development, commercial negotiation of energy storage sales. We're going to unpack a bit what the nature of that work looks like, uh, but we're also going to have some fun because, as you might expect, in a fast-growing team uh, associated with a very large IPP, Merrick has the opportunity to travel and, and get exposed to different cultures, different ways that storage is being thought about and applied and uh, he himself is an avid traveler. So we're going to dig in that, into that today. But first, let me welcome Merrick to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. Pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, fantastic. Likewise. And uh, you know, speaking of world traveler, you just landed uh, from a trip. So I'm <laughs> grateful that you're able to carve out this time in your evening and, and we can take this interview. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate the flexibility because uh, this is probably a, a better audio and acoustic environment than an airport lounge would have been. Yeah, it's a whole other business proposition uh, that I've considered, which is putting uh, putting studios in airport lounges <laughs> <laughs> for folks like you, you and me, who are often find ourselves needing to jump on that call and uh, not having a reliable place to be. To say that you lead an interesting life would be an understatement. And you know, you've you've got a a very interesting background. I think by way of Getting into the narrative of uh, of what you are, how you're currently living out your your passion and your dreams. Oh, I might also note that uh, I'm from Durham, North Carolina, and Merrick went to Durham University. So at least we've got that connection, if nothing else. <laughs> I'd like to hear how you found your way into renewable energy as a category. You're relatively young. We may talk a bit about um, sort of what you've accomplished at uh, in your 20s and, and early 30s. I'm really curious about that first foray into the sector and, and how you knew that this, this is where you wanted to focus your career. Okay. So there's, uh, I guess there's two two points in my, if you can call it career, when it was very early stage. The, fir- the first one of these would be when I was, was quite young, as uh, I'm sure a, a lot of guests on your show will say that what, inspiration comes usually from from looking those close, closest to you. Um, my 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 grandfather, uh, both engineers, both very um, problem-solving oriented people, um, actually civil and structural engineers by background and training. And that's what I thought I was going to go into and, and do as well. And I actually studied, a, well, a general engineering degree, but one that, that specialized in, in civil and structural engineering. My dad is particularly a very interesting uh, person as well. He's worked on all sorts of different projects around the world um, from like the Sentosa Island monorail in in, uh, in Singapore to do with Indian casinos in, in the US, sports car chassis. So like structural engineering itself, it was very, very broad. And I, I remember one of my early memories when when I was, I guess, an early teenager um, was him just fiddling around with this idea around wind turbines and how to make them more um, more efficient. And he was putting together this idea of like a cone to funnel the wind in and, and make it more, uh, you know, powerful. I mean, that idea itself was is just like kind of one of my first triggers of clean technology and why why it would be interesting and important to harvest energy from from sources that aren't uh, you know going to run out for, for billions of years that are driven by the sun um so that's the very early i guess sort of memory relating to to hey this might be an interesting direction to go in but at that time i didn't really uh, explore it i went more in in the direction of civil and structural engineering the same as as basically the uh, the generations before me um but then when i graduated from from university this was in 2009 and it was the height of the uh, global recession well i had a few scholarships through university and i got a job through one of them and then uh, shortly before i was about to start the job 
that they'd given me, um, I got a call and uh, it was not a very good call. It was a call to say you're fired. You know, basically they couldn't take on <laughs> anyone that uh, that they, they had hired because of the of the downturn. Um, so that was really a, a trigger point for me to then look at uh, other things. And I did a bit more soul searching and that's where I thought about you know, moving more specifically into sustainability and clean technology. So really, it's, I guess, primarily by a quirk of fate that my whole career path got derailed and into one that actually I think is maybe a lot more interesting. Yeah, it is indeed. And uh, I mean, what a, what an interesting way to start your career, right? You got this, uh, you got this job that seems like it's a sure thing. So t- tell me how you found your way into what now became a startup spin out of a major company like AES and Fluence. One of the things that intrigues me as well is, you know, given your background and connection with engineering, it seems that you could have done lots of different things uh, and you seem particularly geared towards, uh, maybe we'll call it tinkering. So like perhaps on the entrepreneurial startup side, why choose uh, to take the path of working at a bigger company straight out of university and and having this job sort of begin to define you? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I guess like partly it was again you can put this down to half planning, half 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 luck. I uh, I started applying to a few different programs when I basically it's, it's a great way to start your career. I thoroughly recommend it actually getting fired because <laughs> if you start at that point, like everything is, you know, is, is going to only be positive from there. So uh, it has its uh, advantages, but I, I went and applied for a few different PhD programs and I, I was mostly looking at more still on the structural side, but things to do with sustainability. And so there was like sustainable buildings, zero carbon homes. And it was actually a different program that I'd applied for for an engineering doctorate, which is what I ended up doing, which had already been filled as a post. And then I got contacted by the university when I put in the application and said, hey, we've seen this, this post is filled for, for the zero carbon homes thing, but we've got this really interesting industrial partner, AES, big global um, energy company, uh, a lot of generation around the world. And they're thinking about renewable energy and what it will mean for them and for their business. And it was really when I met what was my industry mentor, my uh, industry supervisor, uh, that he really pitched it to me extremely well because at that time, AES was a, still a pretty heavily fossil fuel oriented company. Actually, one of the best ways to affect change rather than trying to do it for, as an activist or an outsider is to be on the inside of the organization, be in a position where you can help shape and influence and steer the strategy of, of the organization. Okay, I'm only one part of, of a company is, um, I think at that time, I'm not sure exactly the headcount, but like it's definitely in the in many tens of thousands. But I, I had a position that through through this this PhD program, I ended up reporting directly to the, the president of UK and Ireland uh, at AES and basically saying, hey, this is what renewable generation means, the intermittency of renewables, the challenges associated with that. You can make thermal power stations more flexible, which can help integrate more renewables. That that can get you so far. And it was, I guess, over the last 10 years, a potential bridge to helping uh, integrate more renewables to the grid, but ultimately to get towards very high penetrations of, of renewables, you start to need new technologies. I started down that sort of advisory path through exploring the topic in a, uh, doing an engineering doctorate, so a PhD, but based in industry, which was really interesting. This is while you were at ASE, AES, pardon? Yeah. So the way that this sort of engineering doctorate thing works, rather than a PhD being done in the university, you do it actually whilst working for the company and working on a 
a problem they want you to solve or help them understand better. I looked at the topic basically of renewable energy variability, what the problems of that were, what the solutions to it could be. And when I finished that, I then got offered um, a sort of permanent role with uh, with AES. Um, I moved to Northern Ireland. And the Irish grid is particularly interesting because it's really world leading in terms of the amount of, of wind, so non-synchronous renewable generation that it has, like uh, non-spinning thermal generation. And, uh, and that led essentially to everything else that I, I'm doing. So first into de- the development side of energy storage, and then later into the into basically moving into the technology side so providing the technology to other developers which was the uh, eventually what fluence became the um the spin out and joint venture from from aes and siemens yeah fantastic so when you were starting out at aes was having seen how aes was operating in puerto rico obviously there was a a battery initiative internally in aes and uh, and that was technology that they were trying to find projects for around the world. Were you directly involved in the battery side of AES? Is that how it started? So not from the very, very beginning, because what was then AES Energy Storage and became Fluence with, with the joint venture, the, the split out from, from AES, was started, I guess, around 2006, 2007. They'd already done some... Uh, some projects and basically demonstrated that energy storage was already a commercially viable and technically proven concept. Uh, it wasn't really new because it's taking the same technology that's been around for, if you could take the most generous uh, count uh, since 1799, Alessandro Voltaire inventing the you know electrochemical uh, battery. Um, and if you take the, the more recent version, then really like the 70s and 80s where lithium ion batteries and the latest generation of of technology. So the, the technology was there uh, proving that it could be used on the power grid to do useful things and actually essential things as we come to transforming the way that we we power the world was sort of already there, but it hadn't been done in Europe. So my uh, involvement was really, I guess, getting that off the ground within Europe and developing the first commercial battery storage project in the market. That's fantastic. And that was uh, there in Ireland where you'd been placed to sort of work with the team on uh, solving this problem of the intermittency of wind and the non uh, sort of non peak hours of wind is that accurate? Yeah, it, exactly. So it's uh, it was a ten megawatt battery built um, essentially behind the meter at a power station where I, I was based and working and using as much of the infrastructure of the power station as possible to reduce the the costs. Very interesting, actually, that it was a really good way to get something into the market. Because try, if you try to build a standalone battery, as a lot of people now can do, you, at that time, you wouldn't have been able to. Because to build a project like this, you would have to have applied for a generation license. And a battery doesn't fit the criteria for a generator because it's not one. Right? It, it doesn't generate electricity. It stores it and then releases it later on. So to even get a license to be allowed onto the grid to then provide the same services that a power station provides wasn't possible unless you did it through this sort of, it was a very sort of creative backdoors, maybe not the right word, but finding a creative way to get it to fit within the existing rules and regulatory structure just to get it in. And then once it was in, you were able to show a lot more of batteries are actually so much better at providing grid stability uh, services and, and the various things that a power system needs to help integrate uh, more renewables to the grid. How did the evolution of Fluence and your career sort of mesh? Do you feel like you got kind of pulled along into, into this new venture? Was it something you raised your hand and said, hey, I want to go do that? I'm really thinking through 
from a career perspective, you as well as all of us, like we have an opportunity where we could go choose to work for a big company. We touched a little bit on why, why you chose that and why that made sense mm-hmm. for you. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the scale of that as well. But it, it may not be obvious to those listening, the various options that you had within a big company and how you found yourself on the Fluence team. So there was a really interesting moment in, so I'd been in, um, in Northern Ireland. Um, as I said, I moved over there for the, for the role for about two and a half years. I'd got involved in a few different things, various commercial projects and, and the energy storage project was one of those. And it was a major one, but I also got involved in, you know, a bunch of other stuff like uh, trading and hedging of uh, fuel costs and things like that. So I had a few different paths in front of me and I, I guess it was a bit of both. Like I really enjoyed the, the involvement in the energy storage. And I, I just sort of recognized that was something I wanted to get involved with. But there wasn't a clear route for me in because that team was all based in the US. There wasn't anyone in in, in Europe. It was just at that time, quite a, a small team close knit in, in Arlington, Virginia. Then I got a call from what is now my my current boss, the, the vice president for EMEA, um, uh, Fluence Paul McCusker, um, basically saying, hey, I'm starting a team in Amsterdam do you want to join? And it was, I wouldn't say it was a difficult choice, actually. I was uh, sort of immediately jumped at the chance, but I did have a choice. I was basically given um, by my, my current boss there an alternative path going into sort of more the um, the commercial team of, of, of the power station. And many of, I think, the, the people at the, the power station viewed my choice as the risky one, as, you know, jumping into something without stability, without security, you know, the power station has been there for 30, 40 years, it'll be there forever. And I, I suppose at the time, uh, partly I saw that, you know, there was some truth in that. But at the same time, I actually saw it was riskier the other way around, because of how quickly the world is changing around this, this, you know, thermal centralized model. Partly it was maybe a, a risk appetite, but I just found it so interesting that I had to, to jump across to it. The, the biggest issue you have with a starting a a startup from scratch is funding. And the biggest advantage of launching from, from a launch pad like AES and Siemens, who we ended up joint venturing with, the 50-50 uh, contribution uh, from both of them to carve out into a new company, which was a little bit further down the line and about a year or so after I'd moved to Amsterdam, that basically meant that we're you know, fully, fully supported. You don't have to do that day-to-day chasing for survival. You can focus on growth and making an impact and, and changing and scaling. So you now lead a team and uh, there's a whole lot of other things I want to get into, but I really find it fascinating because uh, at a relatively young age, you've found a way to make an impact. And I want to unpack a bit of that, but you lead a team. What does it mean to lead a team? How big has the Fluence team grown uh, under under that leadership as well? So, yeah, so Fluence has, has grown very quickly. I mean, we started as a, a, a very well backed company. So um, when when you mentioned earlier founding member, um, although I was sort of like amongst the very first in in Europe for uh, for what was then AES Energy Storage, when we launched Fluence, we started with about 100 people globally, because there was a lot of people that came across from Siemens in Germany. So we have a big office there. Uh, there was a lot of people in Arlington, Virginia. In the last couple of years, we've doubled in, in size. So we're well over 200 now, I think, uh, plus contractors already it was it was a decent sized team but that, that that team covers a lot of functions it's every everything to do with like we're an energy storage technology company so we design install deliver big scale energy storage systems and then we maintain them stand behind their performance for the long term so there's everything from 
from that sort of very early stage, the market application side of things, finding ways to basically expand the pie, find more opportunities for, for batteries to compete to provide services that traditionally people haven't thought about them providing, like basically replacing power lines or replacing peaking power plants. Really, I come in after that and my team is covering basically the sort of business development, sales, commercial negotiation and signing of, of projects. And then we hand them over to execution, build them. Um, and then after we build them, we have to maintain and service them. So there's an operations and service organization. And then all the functions that you, you would expect around that from you know a safety and engineering, a technology, software. So uh, there's a whole bunch of different things. I sort of, just to give you an idea where I sit in that spectrum, it's sort of nearer that that front end. Predominantly in UK and Ireland because it's the busiest market, but um, I, I do have uh, the honor and privilege of, of getting to cover uh, Middle East Africa as well a little bit. Someone in my team is it mostly does the BD down there, but I, I do try and get find a, an excuse or two to get down there as well myself because I think it's a really interesting growth market. What's the role that you have that your uh, position has grown into? I mean, where do you spend most of your time within the context of BD through to origination and contracting of power? It's still a little bit of everything. Um, we have a lot of, I mean, it's a funnel. So there's a lot of people come to us wanting, uh, you know, wanting pricing, wanting to know our services, our capabilities. Um, some of them have concrete projects and something that they can follow through with. Um, and some of them don't. So having to filter out the, those that have a, either a strategic advantage, a business case, the funding already to, to go ahead with a project to work out, you have to prioritize those is, is important so that you're not tendering for things that have a lower chance of, of actually getting built. The tenders, depending on how they are, sometimes they're very light touch. It's a sort of send us a proposal. Um, and sometimes it's an extremely detailed, here are 50 documents that you must read, fill in and respond to. And so a lot of work goes into responding to those thoroughly and then usually getting selected, shortlisted, and having to go through these different rounds of, of, uh, of offers. I'd like to explore the macro environment that you see. And I'll say from the top, right? Like AES Siemens, thereby Fluence, is the largest energy storage deploying uh, company on the planet right now. So you guys have a particular, uh, well, first of all, you got a huge funnel, as you mentioned, coming in. Um, you have a particular viewpoint on where the sort of what the state of the market is uh, mm-hmm. for storage and its applications. Where do you see that storage makes the most sense right now? And what are the markets that are beginning to take off? And, you, and that could be regionally. It could be sort of application wise. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer it both ways. So, yeah, we have a, a lot of reach into into different markets that like we're in 21 different uh, countries with projects, either operational or in in, in delivery. Um, about 1.6 gigawatts of, of projects. So, uh, I think with a with a first um, integrator to be over a, over a gigawatt in size. So it it is, I guess, a small relative to other technology groups still, but it's growing extremely fast. Like the projection, I think there was nine gigawatts of storage in in the world in uh, installed in 2018, and by 2040, the projection is it's going to be a terawatt. Tero so uh, a thousand gigawatts. So it's a huge growth rate over a relatively short period, 20 years. Where it's taking off the most at the moment, um, I'll answer that first geographically. So the US is a very big market. 
UK and Ireland is as well. And I would say also um, parts of, uh, of Asia Pacific, particularly Australia has very good fundamentals. Plenty of other places as well that fit, but those are probably the biggest growth drivers. And it's for different reasons. So the US in particular, um, first of all, even that's a simplification because there's a lot of different distinct sub-markets within the US. Uh, California is particularly leading, but um, a lot of the other states are, are now also very much going you know, full speed ahead with, with energy storage. The, one of the largest application classes there is replacement of peaking generation. Uh, US has a lot of old, dirty, and relatively underutilized peaking power plants, smokestacks, for, uh, for lack of a better word, that, that run very few hours of the year. When they do run, they only run for a few hours at a time. And if you sort of subdivide that section, something that runs less than 5% of the year and less than eight hours in a row, that's about 67% of the peaker market. It's 73 gigawatts. So 73 gigawatts of peaking generation that can be replaced by batteries. Because, like, okay, this, they're duration limited and peaking generation is not. But if you look at how long they actually run, you can replace them. So that's already a huge market on its own. And that's why you see a lot of four-hour, longer-duration battery projects there for, for that sort of application. In the UK and in Ireland, um, mostly the services at the moment are based around grid stability and, and balancing. So in so Ireland is a great example. I mentioned earlier that very high levels of wind penetration, so highest uh, in Europe at the moment. And in legally binding targets, by 2030, they need to get to 70% renewable generation, renewable electricity. So that's a huge challenge because to get to 70% renewable generation on average over the year, de facto, you need periods where you're nearly 100% because there's going to be periods where you're at zero. So allowing a power grid to operate with 100% renewable generation at the moment is impossible. And it's technologies like batteries that basically enable you to do it because previously you've always had to have what's called inertia, the spinning thermal mass you get from a power station to provide grid stability and to set, set the frequency. But with power electronics, with basically digital equivalents of inertia, you can basically provide the same stability uh, much more efficiently with technologies like batteries. So that's a big driver at the moment in, in Ireland. And the UK is not far behind that same sort of logic um, of getting to very high instantaneous renewable penetrations. And in Australia, less immediately familiar with it, but it has similar characteristic challenges. You've got you know, a long and not very well noded system. It's just a very long, skinny transmission line around the coast of, of, of Australia. In integrating renewables on that is very difficult. And there are also a lot of stability challenges as a result. So there it's a little bit of both. It's renewable integration, um, solving transmission line constraints, um, and enabling more renewables onto the onto the grid. So those are probably the biggest. The, the one that surprises people, I think, the most that isn't what storage is currently about so much is directly storing solar or wind on a co-located basis. There are co-located projects, but most of the time it, it's not about storing the energy on site. It's about some of these other things, the grid stability, the other challenges. It is changing in some places. Like the US is starting now to recognize that solar plus storage has a lot of value because you don't need you know, the cheapest kilowatt hour. What you need is the cheapest kilowatt hour that you can deliver on demand because you need solar at night, not, not just in the day. How do you see the evolution of the battery market in comparison with renewables? And I think a correlated question 
is are we going to see batteries leapfrog renewables as a as an application whereby folks kind of like in Australia, they say, actually, like, we're just going to put in a big battery bank and we're going to do some load shifting uh, rather than direct application of storing. So, so the way I think about that is really actually energy storage and the, the, the technology changes that we've seen that, that have led to the uptake of batteries are really economies of scale, mass robotics, production, and R&D that have brought down the cost of, of batteries. So the cost of the technology has come down to a point where it can do a lot of things more usefully and more efficient than traditional solutions that, that you'd use on the grid, like building power lines, like building peaking power plants. Um, so that, to an extent, would have happened anyway. But what renewables do is re- it's really complementary because it sort of supercharges both. You can't add lots of renewables on the grid unless you can operate it stably and have a way of storing it because of the fundamental intermittent and variable nature of renewables. And equally, storage, the demand is driven by adding renewables to the grid. So they go hand in hand. The final piece, which I guess is related, because again, I would argue that was going to happen anyway. Renewables have come down to a point in cost where they're the cheapest technology. But the final speed booster, this rocket thruster that makes this change so dramatically fast, is the the whole climate crisis. The recognition from at least many in the world now that we need to do this stuff as quickly as possible. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with, I think BlackRock has it. It's sort of the disruption curve of how long it took a new technology to get from 0% adoption to 100%. Basically, it shows, you know, like the electricity when it was first invented or the TV or the mobile phone. Uh, And you you have these technologies that were from 200 years ago, and they took a long time to get to like a mass adoption, like an 80%, say, uh, people. What you see as you get to the last couple of decades is it's getting faster and faster. It no longer looks like a curve. It's just a vertical line. Imagine like the iPhone, right? It's 10 years old, 13 years old, maybe, and everyone has one now. Like it, 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 Basically, the disruption curve is getting steeper and steeper. And I think a lot of people underestimate that in the energy sector because the energy sector has always been a very slow and ponderous to change system. Like It looks pretty much the same today as it would have done 200 years ago, except for um, you know some of the new ways of generating. Like The grid itself is not, not different. The me- methods aren't different. Because batteries are technologies and because really solar as well is is it has more in in common with a semiconductor a transistor uh, than it does with a fuel it's not per se it's a technology and because it's a technology it has these scaling benefits which means that it grows it, the price comes down significantly every doubling of capacity so the two of those go hand in hand and you have this very steep and very uh, aggressive I guess, transition happening, um, which is very complementary. So I think in summary, storage would have happened anyway. Renewables would have happened anyway to a point, but they would have been limited. The two together speed each other up significantly. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's fascinating. And I think it's a topic that is going to just continue to bode well for most of the listeners here who are focused on, uh, by and large, solar and renewables deployment you mentioned back uh, about a market mechanism known as a, an energy tender for disambiguation for those who maybe aren't familiar at the utility scale or grid integration scale define how a tender works and is the rapid deployment we're seeing now by and large led by these sort of uh, these pull mechanisms called tenders or by uh, development or both so uh, I guess I need to differentiate between this there's two types of, of tender because so we're a technology provider we're, we're not a project developer so we would sell energy storage technology to 
a project developer, an IPP, a utility, someone who's going to own that project and use it commercially. So what that customer that we're selling to owns it for also will have a purpose. So often the developer that our customer has to compete to win a contract or a service that they're going to provide to an ultimate Let's call it off-taker, like a system operator. So in the UK, National Grid is the system operator. They require certain grid services and they will, sometimes it's just an open marketplace. You can just bid to, to provide these services, but sometimes they will come out with a special service and a contract and say, okay, we'll give you a X year contract for this service. Well, there will be various technical criteria, but ultimately there's going to be a price component. So the lowest price will win. So both attenders. One is the attender from our customer to an ultimate off-taker. And then equally, if they win a contract and then they, they have to deliver on this service, they actually need a solution to uh, you know fulfill the requirements. So then they might come uh, to us or to other uh, technology providers and say, hey, we need a solution. This is, this is the requirements. Um, here's when we need you to build it by. Uh, here's a specification. Give us a price. Sometimes you, you have bilateral deals as well. So sometimes they might just come to you and say, hey, we've worked with you before. We want to work with you again. Tenders are, are, are pretty common. You have to compete for your business and show that you're you know, you're competitive. So changing gears here just a little bit, and maybe we'll swing back around to market mechanisms, or uh, it seems like given the number of folks on Fluence that we're having, we might, might just have to do a little webcast with the Fluence team and take some questions and answers. Tell me something that is true for you that perhaps very few people agree with you on? Maybe now I, th- I feel that there's more recognition of it, but certainly the work that I've been involved in the last, call it five years, maybe 10 years generously when I started my PhD, was a complete I say disconnect from the power industry. Like People basically just telling me that, that, that storage wouldn't be able to do the services that basically conventional power plants could provide. And each one of those barriers as they've fallen has been very satisfying to me. But the recent one has been particularly interesting because now we've got to the point where we're talking about not uh you know not is it possible but like how soon will we get to a hundred percent renewable energy grid and and that is only possible by demonstrating that that basically you can provide this sort of grid stability without needing to burn fossil fuels to do it i guess i've held that view for a long time based on 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 the research that i did and what would need to be done I wouldn't say it's universally accepted yet, but certainly it's moving in that direction that there's more and more recognition. All right, Warriors. So you know that high demand charges can ruin a good commercial solar cell. But what if you could offer your clients 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth, that's right, a tenth the cost of installing a battery? You can now do that with DemandX a new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy. Check it out at extensibleenergy.com and read the three case studies on how DemandX significantly reduced demand charges and increased ROI without batteries. As a Suncast listener, you can also get a free demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. What do you have to lose? Crunch the numbers and see for yourself how Extensible Energy's inexpensive DemandX software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. Hey there, if you're new to Suncast, I just want to say welcome and thank you. It is an honor to have you here. And of course, if you're one of our solar warriors, hopefully you didn't press fast forward through this. And I just want to honor you and thank you as well. We just 
have been having so much fun with our Suncast Summit. And if you've missed any of the sessions and you'd like to watch the replays, then I would encourage you to go check out suncastsummit.com. There you can find insight from pioneers in our industry and leaders from technology to Latin America to energy storage, folks that have been on Suncast, folks that are soon to be on Suncast, and folks that I hope to someday have on Suncast, joined us at Suncast Summit. And I really, really enjoyed it. I think you will too. So please go check it out at suncastsummit.com. For now, back to the show. How have you seen the world of uh, not within not only with influence but around you maybe even like your competitors spurring you forward change with regard to like the things that you have to do beyond just provide good chemistry each chemistry has it, its pros and cons and there are different sweet spots for them so there there is definitely an element of hardware and how you optimize that but really a lot of the value is in in the software it's in the digital intelligence side of things it's how you package it up to be most useful and uh, operated safely, of course, and to preserve its it, it, its value, its asset life for as long as possible. Because batteries degrade, and if you don't operate them in a smart way, they will degrade faster. So your investment goes down uh, in in value quicker. Um, the software side of things is where a lot of the value is being driven now, because regardless of the kind of system you can build, you can basically build any lithium ion system, and it will be able to charge and discharge within you know within seconds uh, it's far 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 more responsive than say a conventional power plant which might take minutes to start up if it's if it's offline but responding in seconds isn't particularly challenging for for any of them so developing new applications as we call them which is basically a you know software and algorithm uh, uh, you know some kind of proprietary technique is where you unlock a lot of value because this this project that we mentioned a couple of times in the show in Ireland um, is a very, very fast responding battery. It's like an order of magnitude faster than a typical project. And that can only be done by developing very clever uh, control response techniques. But it has value. Um, the actual the system operator is paying um, three times as much for a response in, in the hundreds of milliseconds as opposed to in seconds because it helps you contain a, a frequency event more quickly because if you lose a big wind farm or something it helps it recover faster yeah just to be clear this is the one that we mentioned uh, recently that you guys were do, you did the q a on the the Kalethmoy 11 megawatt system correct yeah that, that's and, right and if memory serves i wanted to circle back on this statistic because i want to make sure i understood it more than just like heard the data correctly but i know you're working on a white paper around how that battery is 60x faster right when you mention orders of magnitude could you unpack it's 60x faster than what? So 60 times faster than equivalent battery that would be responding in the UK's frequency market. So in the UK, the requirement, again, for sort of historical reasons, actually, is set around thermal plants. So for providing what's called a firm frequency response in the UK, you have to respond within 10 seconds to a frequency event. So frequency drops within 10 seconds, the ba a battery in the UK has to respond. Many of them can respond faster, but basically the 10 second response time is, is the sort of requirement of the market. Whereas in Ireland, the requirement of the market is way down in the hundreds of milliseconds. So that's sort of what the comparative range is. So it's an order of magnitude, but even more than that, really, 60 times is quite a, a phenomenal increase of, of uh, response speed. It really is. And, uh, and it's game changer. And it's what we've all been seeing as like 
possible, but now we're actually seeing projects come online that are proving that it's possible, not that it, not that just that it's probable and that we have the algorithmic capacity. I wonder, as a final touch point on this, are there any similar, maybe what we might call killer apps that storage promises that, that still are yet uh, to be explored? To me, one of the biggest ones, because it it's going to be needed anywhere that you have a mature power grid. I, well, so I guess I'll split this two ways. Anywhere you have a mature grid, the US, like the UK, like Ireland, um, transmission and distribution applications for storage are going to be very significant, I think, in the future, because adding renewables puts strain on power lines. You can't accommodate more than a certain amount. And that's really what's going to hold up renewable build out unless you can solve those constraints. And there's two ways of solving those constraints. Um, I'm simplifying perhaps, but one is to build, uh, you know, upgrade the lines, larger transformers, more power lines, more uh, more cables across the country, um, which is a very slow, a very expensive and a very opposed process because people do not like power lines near them. It takes 10 years to build it. And quite frankly, I'm an engineer, so I can say this. Engineers are very bad at predicting human behavior, especially on like 10 to 20 time, 20 year time horizons, right? Like you have to predict. I heard this story um, uh, about New York um, and basically, the, uh, sorry, I can't attribute, attribute it to anyone because I remember hearing it and I, I don't have the facts to back it up. But um, basically that the power engineers in New York City having to predict which areas of the city um, would grow in demand so that they reinforce the grid so that new houses and businesses can be connected there. They, I think it's Astoria in Queens. They made a, a big misestimation of how many people would move there because of gentrification. I can't remember which way around it was. They either massively overbuilt the grid for the area or they massively underbuilt the grid and then basically all these developments are on hold because you can't get electricity to them. So either way, like because you're doing these things on 10 to 20 year time horizons, you're having to predict where the demand is. Uh, building transmission and distribution infrastructure that way, you just won't be able to scale renewables quickly enough. However, if you use batteries, basically you can build them in you know, a year, you can put them exactly where you need them, and you can use them effectively as virtual transmission lines to absorb and discharge power in, you know, in, in relay with one another to mimic power flows. So rather than build a new transmission line, put a battery at each end of the line, charge one, discharge the other. From a nodal perspective, it looks like there's a power flow. And that can relieve the constraint on a line. If you've got a congestion, say, in Scotland, where all the wind is in the UK and the south, you solve it with a virtual transmission line. And and that's a big, a big growth area. I think that's going to be a killer app for, for storage. We're seeing it already in Germany. So in Germany, they have this program called Grid Booster, um, and they're building massive, massive battery energy storage systems in the hundreds of megawatts to basically relieve congestion between the north and the south and, and stop curtailing renewables and dispatching thermal plants to balance the grid. Sounds like uh, something, frankly, they're going to have to deal with in um, uh, very likely in Central America and in Mexico. I mean, the Oaxaca region uh, continually has uh, curtailment issues. So does Texas. Uh, I could see how I've never heard of this idea of virtual transmission lines. I think this is fascinating and I'm definitely going to have to look into more uh, of that. Uh, I have a question that comes from Jeff Bezos, when he is talking about uh, the direction for Amazon, uh, he's often cited uh, in the planning process as saying to his team, what is not going to change, right? And so Bezos positions Amazon in front of what's not going to change, not what is going to change. 
And, and so I think I would like to uh, hypothesize with you about that. What do you feel with regard to energy uh, with all of the things that we fantasize about how the energy grid is going to change? What's not going to change? One of the things that that isn't going to change, I think, or that I'm, I'm a big believer in is technology is a much more effective way of dealing with issues than people's behavior. So I'm not saying that people's behavior will not change, but I think that it's only a subset of people that will consciously act differently um, with, you know, with respect to how they use energy because of, um, you know, climate change, because of more renewable on the grid, that kind of thing. So I, I think that's the common denominator. The way people use energy and what they use it for isn't going to change. Like people will want to travel People will want to, um, you know, have the ability to turn on the lights and the heating whenever they they need it. Like they want to do it affordably. People will want to use energy. So rather than fight that and try and get people to turn off, uh, you know, turn off the lights, let's just find a way of making that utility an enhanced experience and one that's just not harmful to the planet. I love it. And it's also, it fits really nicely with the whole uh, internet of things. It fits well with a home automation um, a, a central thesis of home automation is that, frankly, like people's habits aren't going to change. And even if you give them an efficient unit, they're not going to necessarily know uh, how to optimize and use it efficiently. So we have to build smart systems and integrate machine learning so that uh, we can help them uh, by, by, in many ways, suggesting like, here, maybe this mm-hmm. light will turn off. And, oh, you didn't like that turn off. Like, that's what Nest, the device, is all about. It just is it. It's millions of tests uh, of of com- of people's comfort until it finds the right comfort level, right? I yeah. think you're right. That's really that's a really brilliant uh, insight there, Merrick. Uh, I would say wise beyond your years on that insight. Thank you for that. Uh, I want to pivot here a minute because one of the ways that we came together is a, a mutual friend, uh, James Ellsmore, who also is Forbes 30 under 30. You and James share uh, one thing particularly in common is that you, uh, well, apart from being <laughs> apart from being British, is that you. <laughs> You, you're not you're unafraid uh, to put yourself out there to to have an opinion, uh, to publish that opinion and to seek platforms that will elevate your ability to transmit those ideas. Where do you feel like that comes from as you kind of reflect on your own personality, your training, uh, your upbringing? You know, you've garnered lots of uh, things like Forbes 30 under 30, which is itself remarkable achievement, invited to numerous podcasts and TED Talks. I want to just tap into this idea of building a personal brand and what that means for you, maybe even your generation, but what that means for you personally and how it fits within your role at Fluence. Given my role at Fluence, it works very much hand in hand here because in order to be able to to compete for business, first of all, you need to be known. But equally, you need to be, I guess, differentiated in some way. It's very difficult, actually, fundamentally, to differentiate just on you know hardware or or brand um, alone because that that that's sort of almost a veneer. You can look at it from um, uh, a very superficial level, but when when it fundamentally comes down to it, most energy storage systems are, are quite similar. They have batteries, they have inverters, they have controls, and each will have their own um, advantages, USPs, uh, differentiators, and so on. But what really, actually, I think differentiates businesses and companies is the people that work there. And I have the great privilege of working with some of the smartest, hardest working genius people in the energy industry at Fluence. And the kind of stuff that we're doing is worth talking about. That's basically why I, I, I do it because partly it's it's creating, it's expanding the pie. It's showing that 
new applications, new boundaries, new projects, new markets are possible because it is always impossible until you until it's done. I think that's a Mandela quote, um, probably badly paraphrased, but it always seems impossible until it's done. And we've gone into a lot of new markets around the world and pioneered a lot of new applications. And um, that expands the pie, I guess, to an extent for everyone because it creates more um, opportunities. But it also ultimately accelerates this transition to, to sustainable energy faster, which is what I'm dedicating my career to. So if you don't talk about it, you know, it'll either go slower or, or people won't know about it at all. And uh, so I just see it as probably catalyst is the one word. I, I like to be I like to be considered a catalyst for this change. I mentioned, and we've also got another friend of yours, Pamela Wagner, coming on the show as well, Forbes 30 Under 30. And I mentioned in uh, my interview with her and also highlighted with James, a lot of folks don't know that Forbes 30 Under 30 is, uh, it's a nomination process through which you can self-nominate. And uh, I know that that's one of the, like, that's how James uh, was, was uh, sort of came to the awareness of the Forbes team. It doesn't diminish in any way your ability to land on that list because it's a very competitive opportun- uh, process. I'm curious... If personal branding from the beginnings for you was a key component of like your sales and business dev philosophy um, and how it has benefited you. And then a third element is what is working now. I think it definitely in terms of my nomination for Forbes. So I was I was nominated by my um, by my my boss in, in influence. But I recognize it, it's partly, I guess, in a, in a larger organization where you have a team, you can do that if you are a startup founder and you're on your own or you're a very small team you can't necessarily so i you know i agree like there's nothing wrong with putting yourself forward and i'd encourage people to, to do it if, uh it, it is an extremely competitive process i think the it's fifteen thousand nominations for a few hundred slots it's uh, the, the stats are something like it's harder to get get into the list than than harvard so um it, it is by no means a an easy process and i think you you need to do something to stand out what you need to do is entirely up to you and your personality and your outlook on life and so on. It, what am I good at? Um, to an extent, I think I'm a good problem solver. I would like to think I'm a good communicator. And as we've just said, I, I'm not afraid of putting myself out there um, and, and speaking and having a platform. So in my case, that's what what differentiated me, hopefully. I, I don't know. You'd have to ask uh, ask them, I suppose. But it's going to be different for everyone. So I don't think there's any firm rule about what it is right i've sort of felt my own way through this because there's a there's definitely a balance to be struck in separating out your personal opinions your personal views and then company ones and making sure that that they're either in alignment or that um or that you're keeping them very very separate so it has its has its challenges as well how have you seen that it has benefited you i'll say namely through your work um, I know that you write compelling articles. Yours on, um, you know, past Suncast guest Teague and Energy X is a wonderful sort of look at the the alternate side, like the the hard uh, raw materials side of this problem we're all trying to solve. But are there other ways that you see that this has benefited your you know direct business, your sort of personal network or influence? And then uh, I'd love if from there you can maybe roll into what you're exploring that's working for you now, you, you know, you did a TEDx talk, things like that. Like, are there other things that you see as a part of your personal brand that you are exploring? Yeah. So I would see partly there's, there's a lot of that that I just consider good personal growth. Like each of these things is stretching, like doing the TED talk was one of the most 
it's terrifying things. It, I, I, I said yes immediately, and then I was like, "Oh my god, what what am I what am I going to talk about? How do I prepare for this?" I I spent months on it to make sure that I, I got it got it down and got it got it right. So partly, the, the, let alone anything else, it's just really good personal growth because it challenges you and stretches you in new ways to to take opportunities and to say yes to things when 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 they come up. And then the more you do them, the more routine that they they almost become. But I guess uh, partly I do it because I'm really interested in in all aspects of of energy. I'm a big nerd, basically, and so I, I just enjoy learning about parts that are outside of my just core day-to-day business and space. I have a very interesting and dynamic job as it is, but learning about the outer periphery of that is is partly it's extremely beneficial to me, but also I think it's beneficial association also to fluence because if you don't get ahead of some of these issues, like now the conversation has shifted. First, there was this whole wave of energy storage won't be a thing. It's expensive. It's the wrong technology. Blah, 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 blah. We've kind of got past that because of the critical mass and scale. And now you're hitting this next wave. It's actually more with EVs, I guess. Like you've got the, the internal combustion engine lobby now saying, oh, you don't have enough raw materials or batteries can't be recycled. Or you know, they, they attack the upstream and the downstream. And the same sort of thing applies to stationary storage as now the argument against energy storage as a, as a technology class. And if you don't address the fake news around that or you don't challenge it, or you're not equipped to challenge it, then some of those things are going to slip through. And um, the more the message is, is heard and repeated, people believe it, despite the fact there's no evidence behind it. So that's the the, the upstream part of that that you referred to, the the Forbes article I wrote on on lithium supply chain. I was fascinating, right? Because like it's, it's put as a big blocker. I've heard it many times. There's not enough lithium or you can't extract it quickly enough or it's environmentally damaging. And there's a technology that, that can solve all three of those problems and is you know, really elegant solution to it. And it's the same on the downstream side. My, my next um, Forbes article that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing is, is going to be on the recycling end and, and full life cycle of, of, uh, of energy storage, because there's a lot of myths that, about batteries that they don't get recycled at end of life. Um, there's a huge recycling supply chain in China. It's in China because they've been recycling consumer electronics for 20, 30 years already. Of course. So it's just not happening in Europe or the US because actually the ironic reason it's not happening in the US or Europe is because there's not enough second life batteries. Like batteries are lasting much longer than people expected them to in their first life. So there isn't any volume. You know, you're working at such a high level within the industry with a, a clear market lead and a clear with a clear market leader, what lessons or takeaways thus far have you gotten from maybe mentors in your career or sort of touchstones that have changed the way you think about work? So the first first thing I, I've I've learned and I've, I've definitely sort of had mentorship on in internally within with influence on this is is understanding that there's going to be highs and lows that there is it's a real roller coaster what what we're involved in because it is a fast growth industry there will be wins and losses but actually probably one of the most poignant lessons and on like on reflection whenever we've had we've taken a loss you learn so much more from it than you do from the successes so whilst they're particularly hard to take sometimes if you've worked on something for you know months or even years and not see it come into into fruition or have a setback or, or something like that. It, you know, it's extremely disheartening for because it's a big team of people. Like everyone is working flat out. Like this is what I said. Like fluence, the the effort that people put into this, the passion they put in, is really evident. And that's partly why this is such an awesome 
you know company to have well not even work out but to have helped shape the culture of from 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 like the beginning but you do learn a lot more from the loss what you can do better from it so i, I guess that's probably one of my key lessons from from like the experience the last few years i know that you read a lot in fact uh, the article i mentioned suggests that you have a personal challenge of reading uh, at least a book a month is that something that you've done for a long time yeah i started it i think the year i wrote that that blog post 2018 i, I Started it that year. I did it in 2019. I'm doing it in 2020 as well. So I, I've not upped it because I find it challenging enough to read a book a month um, because I'm <laughs> extremely busy. But I, I'm I'm I've managed it each the first two years. At the moment, I'm at the very end of my second book. It's in the third month, so I'm a little bit behind. But I'll catch up. I'll find a moment. What book um, is so that? Yeah. What's What's the book on your nightstand right now? So the 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 one that I, I just uh, read is the Utopia for Realists. Rutger Bregman, who's the guy, a Dutch guy, historian. You might well know him. He went sort of viral last year at the World Economic Forum. He was the the guy that sat on the panel and was like, why don't you just all pay your taxes? I feel like a fireman at a, a firefighting conference where we're not allowed to talk about using water. And he, he wrote a book, as the name suggests, Utopia for Realists, which is a vision basically of what the you know the world of the future would would look like and arguments for why why he believes this is the case and a lot of it resonated with me um it wasn't topics that i necessarily thought about before but he basically argues for a few things like one is um universal basic income will be a necessity in the future second that we'll be moving towards 15 hour work weeks so more more time to create to do other things of, of value and, and so on in the future because of predominantly robotics and so on reducing the need for for manual labor and and jobs of that sort and the third is is open borders he believes that borders are he had a wonderful turn of phrase on it it was basically um like we'll look back on it as um the the apartheid of our generation basically like looking at it as the idea that because of arbitrarily where you're born you have somehow better better or worse rights than anyone else and i thought it was a fascinating bunch of insights that i found myself nodding along to and thoroughly disappointed andrew yang dropped out of the uh, u.s presidential race because i was suddenly really bought into what he was talking about because i understood it much better after i read that book that so. is really really insightful uh well over the last three years or perhaps maybe uh just in the course of your life is there a book or two that you've gifted or recommended the most because they've had an impact on you so yeah, there, there's one that really stands out for me, um, which is the uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a sort of psychology book. Um, it's about the the mind, the, the two different systems we have, the particularly called System One, System Two. So basically, the limbic system, the our primal response, um, and then our logical thinking mind that actually makes calculated decisions. And what was really insightful to me there, um, he explains it extremely well really interesting uh storyteller with his with with that book so he he basically describes how much more we are driven by this primal instinct response than we are the actual logical thinking minds that we think we all are like our we think of ourselves as the smart one that's doing the thinking but we're very much equally the part that's just automatic and you know cruise control and we don't realize how much we're on cruise control in in everyday life like when i'm trying to think one of the examples from the book like he he says like when we get asked a question usually we don't answer it using the proper thinking we just use a shortcut 
right? You, if you, if I ask you, you know, um, what do you think of uh, of you know how President Trump is handling the coronavirus uh, crisis? You, what you're more likely to do is come up with a response based on your opinion of of him as a as a person, and it'll either be positive or negative, rather than a statistical analysis and breakdown and look at all the actual facts of 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 a situation. So that sort of was really interesting and informative to me. And it's a book I always recommend to people. Really quickly, do you have a methodology through which uh, like you read at a certain time, take notes? How do you have this recall of uh, your takeaways from these books? Um, I do take notes. I have a sort of, um, uh, it's one of the reasons that I read pretty slow because I end up like if I if something's interesting to me I then start jotting notes on it and I, so I have like a one note folder I have notes on my uh, like iPhone and I like pulling out quotes that stand out to me so I have like a whole massive massive note of like all sorts of random quotes from different places that I occasionally go and, and peruse through um, but it's it's that and if it's more structured or if it's something around a particular methodology I'll yeah I'll set up a uh, like a OneDrive note folder or something is there a consistent, besides reading, uh, a habit or practice that you find yields the greatest impact in your work or your life? Two things that, that jump out at me from that. One, I wrote in uh, in in the uh, the four hundred flights four years blog post, um, which is which is a very simple one and very interesting. Came from from uh, a University of Texas uh, inaugural uh, address. I knew you, from, I knew you were going to say yeah. that one. You didn't know I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. So the um, basically, it, it's as simple as making your bed in the morning. I always yeah. make my bed, and even the, while traveling, it, even while traveling, yeah. Even yeah. even though like it, it's a complete waste of time because they're going to do it properly anyway, and you, always, you you never make it look the way that they do when housekeeping comes in. But it's just a a little psychological habit of uh, yep. say if you, his first address line. describes it much better than the, than I can but basically saying look if you do this first thing in your day you've accomplished a task one task you've got more to go but you've got one thing out of the way and you can tick it off your list and it's done and if you have a shitty day and everything has gone wrong you can come back and you've at least come home to a made bed I and I, uh, so that one I find is is really uh um, it, you know, it just has a very nice poignance to it. And I, I've just got used to doing it. I guess the more you do it, the more you, it becomes a, becomes a habit. Well, we're going to link to a lot of, uh, of the resources we talked about today. Uh, also you're very active on Twitter, your Forbes, uh, uh, contributor. You've got a fantastic Instagram because we didn't talk about this. Maybe we will another, in a future call, you, you uh, also t- took up photography through the travels that you engage in. Of course, we'll link to your LinkedIn and, uh, and your website. Is there any ask that you might have of the Suncast audience as we wrap? How can we help? So I'll say the current wave that's inhibiting energy storage from growing faster is partly an awareness of what it can do. And then the second is this, as I said, there's this battle against perceived issues with storage that aren't really real, this fake news around it. So I guess just be, Suncast audience, be conscious of that. When you hear someone say there's not enough lithium or, uh, you know, there, there's issues on the, the supply chain side or you can't recycle batteries, all these sort of things, there's stuff that slow down the industry and get accepted as, as fact when you really go into the details of it. There are, there are very compelling you know, counter counter arguments to each of those. So just be aware of them. Well, Merrick, as we wrap here and touch home base, let's end with a bold prediction as we always do. What one thing do you see happening that perhaps others are not tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I'm going to answer this in two very quick ways. 
So one, I would say something that's a bit off the off the wall from from what we've been talking about today. But um, I, I I think actually the uptake of veganism is going to be much more rapid than people think. Um, first of all, and I'll explain that very very briefly as we're getting really good with the technology side of things of making fake meats that are delicious, healthier, tastier, and and um, you know more environmentally and ethically better for us. So I'm, I'm not a full vegan, but my girlfriend is, is almost vegan. She's vegetarian, but can't eat eggs. And I've discovered, you know, the likes of Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat and so on. And I've actually been blown away. I, lo- I like it more than a regular burger. I'm the same. I've had the exact same experience. So I think that's going to be one. And it's a perfect analogy to my, like, my whole philosophy of believing that technology will solve problems as opposed to people having to change their, their habits. And the second quick one coming back more to energy is I think EV uptake, obviously it's growing very quickly. And mo- a lot of people would say, I think that's not a controversial view, but what people forget about also is this whole Uberification of transport. So EVs basically as a service and autonomous vehicles at once. So if you package all three of those things together, the electricity system is actually very differently needing to cope with that than if it's a simple switch from people using EVs and driving them manually the same way that they do a a combustion engine car. Um, Because basically, you'll just have roving cars without anyone in them going and picking people up and making you money on the side when you're not using it because you're at work. So I think that's a very fascinating trend to think about. And we could probably do a whole hour on that digging into it. But two bold predictions for you. I love it very much. Mayor Kubik is the market lead for the UK and Ireland and, uh, and is a young, insightful leader at, uh, at a very forward-thinking and uh, market-leading company, Fluence. It's been a genuine pleasure to have you here uh, for the last 90 minutes and look forward to hearing the feedback from our audience. Merrick, thanks for joining us on Sendcast. No problem. Thanks, Nico. It's been great chatting to you. All right. Thank you so much, Merrick, for joining us here on Suncast. Man, that was such a fun ride and such a foray. Every time I get a chance to interview one of these 30 under 30 Forbes uh, list winners, my mind is expanded, which I'm sure is why they're chosen for that distinct honor. Just as our friend James Ellsmore and uh, Pamela Wagner, who recently was on the show, uh, we're trying to make it through, make our way through that list uh, as we can. I hope that you have some takeaways from this conversation with Merrick. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Would you just take a moment and fire an email or a LinkedIn message? My email, of course, is nico at mysuncast.com. I just want to know what was the one main takeaway that you gained from this conversation with Merrick? You can find his Twitter handle and mine over on the blog post at mysuncast.com. If you click on the listen to latest episode button, you will be taken right to that blog post. And uh, if you can't find it, pro tip, just scroll all the way down to the bottom and pop it in the search function that you'll find in the footer of the home page. And while you are there at mysuncast.com, I'd love it if you would take a moment and fill out our listener survey. It really only takes a couple of minutes and it gives us so much greater insight into how we can serve you more. And that is what we're about here at Suncast, bringing you tools, tips, and insights and helping you along your journey as an entrepreneur, intrapreneur, or wherever you may find yourself in the growth curve of your career. If you're looking to get into clean energy, I'd encourage you to think about joining the Clean Energy 
guild. You'll find mentorship opportunities and training opportunities. And that is a fun place that we've recently been leaning into over on Facebook. We're getting close to 100 members now, and I think we'll probably get well over that as we continue to let more people know that we've got that Facebook group. If you go to Facebook groups forward slash Clean Energy Guild, you'll find us there. And uh, it's no surprise because our private membership (laughs) is the Suncast Guild. So that's a place where you can get to know us. You can get to know our friends and our community and see if there are ways that we can serve you and help you overcome your challenges. In the meantime, I hope that you'll come back next week and dig into more Suncast episodes. And don't forget, we've got the final session, the LATAM-focused sort of State of the Union session on May 6th for Suncast Sun. Have a fantastic weekend. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.